So here is 2 Samuel 23, verse 3 through 4. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on the cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. Let's take a moment to pray. Father, we thank you for this time together where we're able to come into your presence and hear your word. For we trust in your promise that faith comes from hearing and hearing the word of God. And so, Lord, we entrust our hearts and our minds to you in this hour, and we pray that you uh, speak to us. Let it be clear, let it be understandable, and let it be transformative from the inside out. In Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, today's Father's Day, right? And, you know, traditionally and also biblically, the head of the household, the leader of the household is the father, right? Spiritually and in many other ways. Um, but here's the thing. We live in a time where we don't have that, that model, where that model is not true for everyone. Sometimes you have a home where the father is not there for whatever reason. Sometimes you have a home where the father is physically there and he's continue, he continues to be there, continues to pay the bills and drive you to school and whatever, but he's emotionally not there, right? Um, what, is, what, is it, what does Father's Day look like to a family that just can't relate to Father's Day? You know, when you, when you come into a point, when you come into a church like this and you know, we're celebrating, and by the way, did you guys even know what that gift was? <laughs> that they, that, what is it, Lydia and Duke, that they prepared? Or some other people also came over, right? Huh? Susan and Brian. Susan, oh, sorry, Susan and Brian. Can we just uh, say, th at least the father say thank you to them? <laughs> yeah. Um, <clears throat> it looked like roses, but it's actually bacon. <laughs> like... Like, that's genius, right? I don't know who thought of that, but you guys are genius. There you go, see? Visual aid. <laughs> um, like, I'm so appreciative of that. But also, at the same time, I want to acknowledge families. Like, when we have, when we're blessed in such a way where we're able to enjoy, like, something like this, and where we have fathers like Pastor Billy, who's, who loves on his family and loves on our church like this, it's such a blessing and where we can give him some bacon is so, such a blessing. But at the same time, in the midst of celebration, without, without taking away from the joy that's there, we also want to bring dignity to the people here and everywhere in our lives on a day like this where they don't know, like, what is that? Like, what does it mean to celebrate Father's Day when I don't have a good father? I didn't even have a father, or I, didn't, I, didn't, I had a father physically, but I didn't have a father emotionally. Um, what does it look like to grow as a church in the midst of a day like this, and to be able to say we are family, to be able to celebrate Father's Day? And uh, if the father is the head of the household, and if the head of the household is not there, what is a household supposed to do? Um, when you think about this, it can seem very depressing or sad at first, 
but I'm telling you, it's, it doesn't have to be a narrative of brokenness. You don't have to see your life, your family, as merely broken. There is brokenness there, but it doesn't have to be just brokenness. Because where there is brokenness, and if we love the gospel, and if we believe the gospel, where there is brokenness, there is redemption, right? Amen? Um, when, you, when a family doesn't have a physical father or an emotional fa- a father who is emotionally present, the family is not without hope. The family has an eternal, wonderful, good father in heaven. And the family has the greatest opportunity in some ways where, for example, a traditional family that may have a human father, that, that may be a blessing, but it can also be a hindrance because the family can trust in those traditional values and that traditional family structure and never look to the Father in heaven feeling that they have everything that they need right here on earth. But when there is a family that may have some brokenness when it comes to fatherhood, there can be a tremendous amount of hope. There can be a tremendous amount of redemption when that family no longer looks and trusts in a limited, broken, sinful human being to satisfy them and to make them happy. But now they're looking to a heavenly father who is sinless, who is eternal, who cannot die, who is always present no matter where you are in life, whether you're a little spoiled brat <laughs> or whether you're a jaded, you know, uh, older person, you know, or whether you're a growing, you know, uh, human being in the grace of God. You always have a father. And you're able to have the best father on earth. That no family, no matter how traditional they are and how visibly uh, successful they may seem in terms of fatherhood, that family can never compare to a family that looks to the Heavenly Father. So what does that look like? What is a leader of the household, not just of the household, but of a church, of a nation, look like? And that's what 2 Samuel 23 is all about. That's actually what 1 and 2 Samuel, the entire books, are about. If you read from 1 Samuel, from the beginning of 1 Samuel to the end of 2 Samuel, you're basically reading about the leadership of God. And how his leadership extends to three key leaders, human leaders, who are Samuel, Saul, and David. And in the midst of those lives, there's a lot of brokenness. There's a lot of flourishing as well, and a lot of blessedness. Um, But what we see, what's really important is that we take note of the fact that First and Second Samuel is not about how great or how bad Samuel, Saul, and David were. It's not about that. And if you put the focus on how great they were or how bad they were, you're missing the point. First and Second Samuel, if I were to say it again, it's about God's leadership 
and how his leadership is extended into the lives of these three people. And that's very different from saying that First and Second Samuel is about the leadership of Samuel, Saul, and David. Samuel, Saul, and David were channels through which God's leadership and his administration, his headship, was ruling the people. And 2 Samuel 23, verse 3 to 4, that Carr read, that is an ideal picture of the ideal leader, right? You know, I was at a church planting get-together, and um, I, I go to these monthly church planting networks, and my first meeting I went to, I remember, it was in Buckhead, and uh, the, there's training there, and the guy who was giving the training on that day he was talking about the ideal team player or the ideal team leader. And um, he used the Marvel Cinematic Universe to show what kind of leaders these different characters were. And so what he was saying is that you have different kinds of leaders. He made three categories. There's the, there's the, um, the humble leader, the, the hungry leader, and then the strong leader. And the ideal leader is someone who has all three, who's... Humble, who's hungry, and who's smart, right? And, for example, he gave an example like Spider-Man. Who do you think Spider-Man is? Right? He's, he's hungry. He wants to learn. He wants to do stuff, right? But, right, he's also humble, right? He's not like, oh, I'm so great, right? He's just barely staying alive, right? And protecting the streets of New York, right? And, but he's not all that smart in terms of not just intellectual brain power, but he's just making so many mistakes all the time. Like, you know, he's doing well, he's shooting his webs, he's defeating these enemies, and then he gets pummeled by someone because he's talking too much. You know, you got Spider-Man, right? What about Hulk? What kind of leader is he? Yeah, strong. He's a, he's a very hungry leader, right? He's a bulldozer, right? But he's... He's not humble, right? He just wants to smash, right? Which also means he's not that smart either, right? Um, and then you have someone like, um, who's the guy, the main, the main protagonist of Guardians of Galaxy? Star-Lord, what's his name? Yeah, Chris Pratt's the actor, but his... Star-Lord, but he had some other name. Oh, Peter Quill, right. So you have Peter Quill, right? What kind of leader is he? He's smart, but he's not humble, right? Like, you know, he's doing a dance-off, right? And he's just like, he takes the, anyways, he's not humble. Nor is he, he's not hungry either. He's very content where he is. And if he's going to save the universe, it's just going to be because it just happens. And he's content with, you know, that. He's not, he doesn't believe in this great cause, he doesn't believe in self-sacrifice, right? He believes, well, I guess this is something we have to do, right? Um, but who's the ideal leader? Who has all three in the Marvel Universe, right? And there were two people that the trainer at the Church Planting Network said. One is Captain America. And the other? Mm -mm. Iron Man is actually... Iron Man is, he's a hungry leader, and he's also a smart leader, but he's not humble, right? Black Panther, right? Yeah, Black Panther. 
So you got Captain America and Black Panther. They have all, they're like the ideal leader. Now, there is some truth to that, right? Humble, hungry, smart, right? Now, here's the thing. What is this verse telling us about what an ideal leader is? What is this verse telling us? I'm going to tell you two things. Number one, the ideal leader is someone who follows. Interesting, huh? The ideal leader is someone who is always following someone else. I'm going to explain. And secondly, the ideal leader is someone who blesses others. So it's interesting. The ideal leader is not someone who's self-absorbed, who's very gifted. The ideal leader is someone who's always following someone else and who is always blessing someone else. That's the ideal leader. And that's the Heavenly Father that we have. Let me explain what it means for the ideal leader to follow someone else. When you look at this verse, you don't want to jump over the first few words of verse 3, where it says, the God of Israel has spoken, the rock of Israel has said to me. You don't want to jump over that to get to, oh yeah, let's see what the leader, what a good leader is, right? You, that's part of what it means to be a good leader. And if you skip over that first part of Second uh, Samuel chapter 23, verse 3, you're missing out on a key characteristic of the ideal leader and of the ideal father, right, is that the ideal leader follows what God says. The ideal leader follows what God says. You see, the definition of an ideal leader, as given in these two verses, is prefaced by the fact that this definition, you're not getting it from Google, okay? You're not getting it from a human king. You're not getting it even from a prophet or a priest or a judge of Israel. You're getting this definition from God himself. And it's what God has spoken and what God has said that defines the first characteristic of the ideal leader. Um, what does it mean for the rock of Israel to say what a leader is? What, is? what does it mean to say that God is a rock? When you think of a rock, if you're thinking stubborn and hard-headed, yeah, that's part of being a rock, but it's not what it is here. For the rock, when it's attributed to God, and it wasn't only the Jews who used the rock image for, their, for God, there were other um, ancient Near Eastern um, cultures that used the image of a rock for their deities. But for the Jews here, when they said that God is a rock or he is the rock of our salvation. I think one of our songs actually had those lyrics, right? Rock of our salvation or something? Or no, it was our call to worship, I'm sorry. But um, it, there are three things that come out when we say God is our rock. Number one, there's safety and refuge. Safety and refuge. When you're on a rock, right, it's not gonna fall apart underneath your feet. And when you're in that very hostile climate, of Israel, right? When there's a sun out that's beating down upon you, that is life-threatening heat, right? To take cover under a huge boulder, the temperature in the shadow of that rock versus being out in the sun 
is a major difference, right? It's the difference is life or death, right? So the rock is a symbol of safety and refuge. Secondly, it's a symbol of strength, right? It's not going to fall apart. And thirdly, it's a symbol of endurance, right? Like erosion will take a long time for that rock to turn into nothing, right? And so what it's saying is you can trust God. You can trust him. Yeah, there are times where it doesn't seem like it because your life is not going the way that you plan or there's a lot of suffering or there's a lot of loss. And we don't want to diminish the impact of that, but you can trust God because what he, the work he's doing is greater than either the moment of time that you're experiencing right now or it's greater than the years that you are suffering through. Right? And you're saying, what do I know? Right? This is something that my parents have told me. This is something that I've heard other parents tell their children that they told me. Right? When the Korean War hit, and after that, the after effects of trying to survive, right? They would eat like tree bark because there was nothing to eat, right? And these people who were living in that generation, right, who were just trying to survive, and they immigrated to America, and they finally are making some sort of a living, right? These people are the same people who say that you have to trust in God. Yeah, when we had nothing to eat, right, you have to trust in God. And it's not this distance, like, it's not this dismissal of your suffering. It's actually an affirmation of the God who is present in your life within the midst of that suffering, right? Um, next, so uh, an ideal leader is someone who follows God, what he says, right? And because he follows God, he is a leader that rules justly over men. And what does it mean to rule justly? The verse itself tells us, one who rules justly is one who rules in the fear of God. One who rules justly is one who rules in the fear of God. And what that means is, you know that cliche, absolute power? corrupts absolutely it's very true what is what is the what is true about absolute power there's no one greater than you there's no one that you submit to you're the law you're the boss you call all the shots and no one can tell you what's right and what's wrong no one can challenge you and if they do they're going to remember it because you're going to stamp them out right now one who rules in the fear of god is, and this is tied to listening and following what God says because you're not going to follow what God says unless you fear who God is. You're not going to follow what God says unless you fear who God is, right? Um, a leader who exercises influence and power over others in a just way is a leader who knows that he or she is under God's authority and power. It is someone who always remembers that their influence and their position of leading is an extension of God's authority 
It is never you doing what you want to do and then putting God into the picture in order to justify your actions. It's two very different things. Okay? You can feel like there is no one in higher authority than you, and what God becomes, he becomes a validation sticker. He becomes, he becomes this thing that you stick on to your decisions and your agenda in order to make it look good in front of people who are looking for that kind of validation, right? That's something very different from someone who knows that their authority is not even their authority. They're just managing God's authority for the people. And someone like that who understands that they're not in authority, that they're not just tacking God on to make it sound like a good authority, but someone who understands that they, they are in the same place as any other human being, but they have been called by God to extend his authority is someone who is always trembling before God, not out of just being scared of God all the time without trusting who he is and his gracious character and his kindness, but is someone who understands the, the impact of the cross. You know, I tell this story to some people when it comes up. Usually it's during communion. But, you know, Martin Luther, his belief about what, um, what the communion table was is very different from what we believe it to be today. Right? Martin Luther believed that the, the actual, the physical body and blood of Christ was in the bread and the wine. He actually believed that, right? It was there. It was called consubstantiation, right? We don't believe that. The bread and the wine, well, for us, is grape juice. That is not, it doesn't physically have Christ's body and blood, but when we have the communion, Christ's spiritual presence is actually here. It's actually here when we have communion, right? His spiritual presence, not his physical presence, his spiritual presence is right here. So we have different views with Martin Luther, but, you know, I really respect Martin Luther because he was one who knew what it was to fear God. Um, He was giving, he was administering the Lord's Supper one day, and he spilled the wine. And because he had such a fear of God, he dropped to his face and licked up the wine because he was so, he was trembling at the fact that he spilled the very blood of Christ. Like, that's someone who fears God, right? Like, I mean, how do we, how do we approach our faith today? It's definitely, I know for me, right, There are so many times I have to repent where, you know, like reading the Bible is not that. It's I don't tremble every time I read it. Sometimes I'm so busy, I'm just doing it out of duty, right? What about prayer? It's something I just have to do, get done. It's another to-do list I just check off and mark off, right? Um, Martin Luther knew what it was to fear God, right? Like, he dropped to his knees and he licked up the, the wine because he, he believed that he spilled the blood of Christ on the floor, the physical blood of Christ that redeems him from sin and that saves him from hell. He spilled it. What a bumbling idiot, 
I am. You know, it's that kind of mindset, right? Um, that fear of God is also portrayed in C.S. Lewis in his book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And he's talking about Aslan, the, the lion. And let me just read you this. Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course, he's, of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you, right? So what is that showing you? God, of course, Aslan is a picture of God. And it's saying God is not safe. And the thing is, we think he's safe because we're in an age of grace and he forgives sin. He's not safe. If you realize what he did to his own son 2,000 years ago, you know he's not safe. He is not safe to be around. But what he is, is he is good. He is just. He's a righteous king. He will not be corrupted. Right? He is eternal. Um, he is steadfast and faithful, but he is definitely not safe. And those who rule justly, they understand that. They understand that the God that they stand before and that they live in the eyes of, he is not a safe God. But he is a good God. And it's his goodness that keeps you safe. And the righteous leader, the just leader, is someone who understands that and who rules and leads in a way where his soul trembles with gratitude because of what the brutal work of Christ on the cross that it was done for us that we may be set free from the bondage of our sin right that's the kind of god that a righteous king that a just ruler serves and he understands, how dare I even think that I can exercise some authority when I stand before a God like this? The just ruler understands that anything that he does is an extension of God's kingdom, of his leadership. And this is what happens when the just ruler rules in the fear of God. If you look in verse 4, right, it says, he dawns on them. The ruler dawns on them like the morning light. What a beautiful, poetic, wonderful way to describe what happens when a just ruler rules. There is a dawning. You know that first light in the morning, that sunrise, right? When you get up in the morning and you, who here loves waking up with the sun? I love it, right? No? Okay. I love it. <laughs> I love that first light, right? When I was dating, I was like, let's go see the sunrise, right? And then that morning I'd be like, you know, sleeping in bed. But at least in my mind, it's something I loved, right? <laughs> now here's the thing. That's the language that God employs when it comes to the just ruler. That's what happens. Like, he dawns on them like the morning light. The sun shining forth on a cloudless morning. Right? The sun shining at sunrise when there is not a cloud in the sky, where the sky is just pure blue, right? Um, you know, when it says that the just ruler is like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth, there, 
there is a language of newness here, a language of newness that causes growth. And what's happening here is that it's not just any kind of growth. Like, it's not just like, who here is 21 right now? Anybody? Okay, Eric, right? When Eric turns 22, we're gonna say Eric grew, right? We can say Eric grew, right? That's true, and that's a really good thing. And if Eric gets any taller, I'm gonna get more depressed, right? Now here's the thing. The language here is not about this kind of growth that happens at any stage in life. It's a very specific kind of growth that happens in the beginning, right? It's a new growth, a newness, a growth life that exists when there was no life, not just life that becomes more um, lively, you know? It's life that begins to exist when there was no life. And so there's salvation language here. Let me show you. It's not everywhere in scripture that you find this kind of language of dawning, right? This very beautiful poetic language of like dawning. But where you do find it, two places where you do find it is first, I'm going to say this first, even though um, time-wise the other one comes first, but... Matthew chapter 4, and I encourage you to look at it. Matthew chapter 4, verse 15 through 16. And uh, that is a quote of Isaiah chapter 9. Now, if you know your Old Testament, okay, Matthew chapter 4, verse 15 is kind of obscure, but Isaiah 9 is one of those famous passages about the Messiah. It's kind of like Isaiah 53. That's the suffering servant. Isaiah chapter 9 is where it says, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. Right? That, that passage, Prince of Peace, that's Isaiah 9. For unto us a child is born. For unto us a son is given. It's that passage. Right? And Isaiah 9 is being quoted in Matthew chapter 4, verse 15 through 16. And do you know what's happening in Matthew chapter 4? Jesus has finished the temptations by the devil that he was experiencing in the wilderness, and he is starting his ministry. There is a newness that is happening there, right? Jesus is starting his ministry, and not only is he starting his messianic work, right, so to speak, but the people are experiencing a very new blessing. Like they're being blessed in a very new way. Uh, Matthew chapter 4, verse 15 through 16, it says, The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death on them, a light has what? Dawned or shone. Yeah, but in my translation it says dawned, right? Now, here's the thing. Zebulun and Naphtali, you're like, what, the, what is Zebulun and Naphtali, right? Um, when Joshua conquered the land, uh, they split the land up into 12 regions. Zebulun and Naphtali were two of them. Uh, the, the thing about Zebulun and Naphtali is they were the northernmost part of all of the land that was conquered. And what that means is they were the most vulnerable to foreign attack. They were constantly being challenged in a military way. So nations would come, and if they wanted to conquer Israel, 
they would first attack Zebulun and Naphtali. So can you imagine a group of people who are constantly defending themselves, right? Now all you have to do, if, if that's still hard to relate, all you have to do is just personalize it. What if you lived a life where everybody was constantly verbally attacking you? Or maybe you lived a life where constantly someone was physically attacking you, right? What would your life look like? What would your heart look like? How would you think about life if day after day you were being assailed? If day after day you were being insulted and attacked and challenged, what would that feel like? You would feel like there is no hope and you would become very jaded and angry or resentful or maybe you, would, you, don't, you don't have the energy to be angry. <laughs> you just give up on life and you just end it. Right? The fact that it was Zebulun and Naphtali where Jesus started his ministry, the Galilee of the Gentiles, where he dawns on them like the morning sun, what that means is your life has changed. Your life has completely changed from this point forth. Right? So all the criticism, all the attack that you've been having that you've grown up with and there was nothing else that you knew it has changed that's what that is so you see it's not just any kind of new like it's not upgrading from like iphone 6 to 10 okay that's a big jump right but you know what it's like have you guys seen the 2007 apple conference when steve jobs Introduce the first iPhone to the world. You guys watch that? How many of you guys seen that? Oh my gosh, no one saw it here? I think I've watched, okay, one person. I think me and Matthew, me, I think I've watched it enough to cover everybody in this room, right? It's just, you have to understand, you know what were the smartphones back then? Blackberries. Like, they had physical plastic buttons that you had to press. Like, look at these fingers. Like, I had a, smart, I had a smartphone before the iPhone came out. Like, do you know how many times I would press three buttons at the same time? Like, when I saw the iPhone for the first time, and I didn't even jump on the first one. You know, I didn't have money. I was a humble youth pastor, right? Now, I'm just a humble pastor. <laughs> when I... When I got on the iPhone 3GS, okay, the 3GS, I thought heaven was opening up. You know why? Because, okay, I, the sermon's getting really long because of this, but, okay, I'm going to tell you two things, all right, and then I'm going to move on. No, three things, all right? One, the keyboard, the keyboard. I took these sausage fingers of mine, okay, and I started typing on that little digital touch capacitive keyboard and even though my thumb covered three letters it would it would only respond to the one letter I was wanting amazing okay amazing thing number two the scrolling do you remember scrolling on a flip phone you go right with the with the iPhone it went and it just what right all right number three voicemail right? 
voicemail. Do you remember di- listening to your voicemail? You would hold down one, and then it would, and then, you know, do you want to delete? Do you want to skip? Or do you want to, you know, and it's like, that's how you used to do voicemail. And then with the 3GS, what happened was, now there's visual voicemail, and you can touch it. You touch your voicemail, and you can skip to like the fifth voicemail that you have. Amazing. Like, that's the kind of new change I'm talking, like, life-changing change, okay? Like, what the iPhone did for the smartphone market at that time was amazing. And what, I'm, what Jesus did for Naphtali and Zebulun as a nation, as, as a people group, right? It was, um, it's something that they have never experienced before, right? Something that they have never experienced before. <clears throat> That's what it means to be a leader. And ultimately, all of us fall short because there are times when we don't want to follow God, we don't want to follow what he says, and we just want to follow what we want to do, right? That's, that's us. And then there are other times we just want to do whatever we want to do, and we don't really care about blessing people the way that Jesus blesses people, right? It's not just about, hey, I just, you know, uh, I'll give you this sticker or I'll give you this you know, whatever. It's not, it's not like that. It's, it's a, it's a culture-changing, life-changing newness and blessing that you bring to people. Like, who can do that, right? It's not these incremental little blessings, which are good too, but it's this life-changing blessing that you bring to people. Like, what does it look like for us as a people of God to bring that kind of change where we work, where we do family, huh? where we, where we uh, have fun in the city. What does that look like? Where you can bring a life-changing change to someone. And you see, the truth is, it's very difficult for us to do that, right? And that's why... We can't just say, we can't go away from the sermon and just be like, okay, so I have to be the type of leader that I'm always following after what God says and so that I don't make any mistakes. And I have to be the type of leader where I bring not just little changes that sometimes mean something and sometimes mean nothing, but I need to be a leader where I need to bring tremendous change, right? If, you, if that's all we're coming out of, then we're missing the point. Right? The, the ideal leader is someone who trusts in Christ, who is always faithful in following after the Father's will, because that's what he came to do when he incarnated, and is someone who always brings that kind of culture-changing, life-changing change to people. And if we're not extending his leadership to our lives and to all the different layers of our lives, our family, our work, then we won't, we're, we're preventing people from flourishing, from sprouting, right? We're preventing Christ from dawning on, our, on, on the people and in the circles of our lives, right? See, it's not us. 
who are the change agents, we're extending, right, God's leadership to our lives and to the lives of people around us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time together and we